From the Bob Varley Studio in Orlando, Florida, you're listening to The Diz Unplugged. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Diz Unplugged Roundtable Discussion for April 7th, 2010. I'm John Magi, and I'll be your host this week. Uh, Pete Werner has a dental emergency today, so he won't be joining us. For right now, he's sort of floating around the house and probably will poke his head in and out occasionally. But he has to go and leave for the dentist later. Um, this week, I'm joined by our Orlando team, Corey Martin, Kathy Whirling, Teresa Eccles, Walter Eccles, Kevin Close, and Max the Intern. We also have two very special guests with us today. We have Yvette and Emil, whose last name I'm not going to try to pronounce. <laughs> Van Allen Willen, <laughs> which I think means from the Netherlands, right? <laughs> Villain Willen. Van Leeuwen doing. Van Leeuwen. You got a little closer to the mic. Van Leeuwen. Van Leeuwen. What? Van Leeuwen. <laughs> Would you call me? <laughs> it doesn't even begin with an F. <laughs> no, it's with a V. Oh, the F is silent. The F is silent. <laughs> On this week's show, Kevin Close has a review of the Flying Fish Restaurant. Finally. Really, in the Boardwalk Resort. And we're going to listen to David Parfit's uh, interview with Marty Scalar about Herb Ryman and the Herb Ryman Foundation. Uh, All that, and plus, you know, the entire show, we're pretty much going to be making fun of Yvette's accent. So that's going to be my comic relief for the show. Uh, All that, plus Roundtable Rapid Fire. And much, much more. Uh, we have some housekeeping, I know. Teresa, you have some housekeeping for us? Yes, I do. I had to leave home. At home and did. I do have some things we got in the mail here. Um, we got a lovely box of bizarre drinks from Tinkbutt, um, Monster Mucus, Dog Drool, Bug something. Tussle. Bug tussle. <laughs> what are you talking about, woman? It's the flavors. It's the flavors of the drinks. Oh. I don't know if it's really bug tussle. No, it's it bug was. Bug barf, I think. Bug barf. That's the big town that the Beverly Hillbillies used to live near before they moved to I Beverly Hills. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to thank um, Tink Butt for that. We also got a box of chocolates from. Life is a box of chocolates. It is. From Mike and Carol, I believe. And a great picture of their grandbaby. Do y'all remember a year ago when we oh, were on yeah, the cruise? Right, right. Look at the baby now. Oh, look at that. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is She's nice. So cute. I think that was photoshopped in. <laughs> <laughs> You're so wrong. And we also got a box of chocolates from somebody else. Hang on. We're actually going to be seeing Mike and Carol. Are you? Michael and Carol, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to see them. They're so sweet. He is a fascinating guy. He is. Absolutely and you guys are going to take lots of pictures, aren't you? No. Well, then well, we got another little... Hang on. We got another little box of chocolates from... Sarah McWhorter, and it had a sugar-free candy bar in there for Pete. Cool. Thank you. Nice. Thank you very much. Cool stuff. Um, I have a happy birthday to Kevin. Yes, Kevin's Yay. birthday. Happy birthday, Kevin. I'm 51. Oh, my gosh. You don't look that. Thank you. He does not. Looks That's much, the only reason I say that. Much, much older. <laughs> <laughs> if I looked 51, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> 51. Any other housekeeping? I don't know if y'all announced it last week, but uh, Finley... Paula Martin was born on March 25th, uh, 7 pounds, 13 ounces. We didn't announce it on here. We announced it on Facebook. And it was announced <laughs> on the boards. Yeah, it, it's all in the, the social media 
the side of the web. But uh, I want to thank everybody for their um, compliments, their support, and everything else they gave us. Because I was keeping updates from the uh, from Facebook uh, while we were in the doctor's office, and the the amount of responses was overwhelming. Uh, just just along the whole way. So everything is fine. Julie is doing great. Finley is healthy. And just wanted to thank everybody for everything. How's Ferris doing? He's he's definitely curious. He's curious, but we need to be careful with him because he tried he does, to grab her yet. Yeah, he doesn't know how to uh, <laughs> be gentle with yeah. her yet. So we need to kind of watch that. But he's definitely curious about those noises. Watch those him close. Crying Max noises. Uh, flung Grace across the room the first day she was. <laughs> oh, I thought you said yesterday. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to say thank you for all the birthday wishes on the boards and the private messages. Thank you very much. It's going to be weird, isn't it, that we have a generation of children whose births are announced on Facebook. It really is. Or yeah. Twitter or it's, whatever else you're doing. It's amazing because it's instant gratification as far as, you know, like we were we were in labor and like Julie just got an epidural. And then I bet you Julie like five, would not think that you were in labor. In five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, was there lo- I was there the whole way. But, you know, this was, you know, that whole process, it was like we were on a date. Because I didn't have my computer, I couldn't work, and it was just us two for the whole day. And once she got the epidural, she was just happy. <laughs> so how romantic! <laughs> it was, it was I very. That was cool getting that, updates of her being in labor. I mean, yeah. we didn't get to do that, did we, Teresa? No, I don't remember that. We had stones and chisels <laughs> <laughs> and smoke signals. Yeah. I took a photo of her, and in the background there was a dry erase board where the um, the nurse uh, wrote her name, Finley's name on there and everybody on facebook they were trying to guess the name you just really couldn't make it out from the photo so they were all trying to make it out and it was hilarious like what's the name what's the name gonna be just wait but yeah excellent congratulations anybody else housekeeping yes i have a housekeeping the iron spike room was changed at the beginning of march you're referring to our you're referring to our uh, stump the round table from last week where Kevin it was the a, iron spike room up until March. We had 9th. a question about uh, well, the room at the one, Wilderness yeah. Lodge. Resort. Wait, what was I was I wasn't here. What was the we did uh, question? Around, we did a stumped around table where listeners sent in questions, and one of them was, "What is the name of the room at the Wilderness Lodge Villas that okay. has Walt's train in it? Part of Walt's train, and it's themed for Walt's train." And the correct answer is the Carrollwood Pacific Room. And I said, I don't think that's true. And on our site, we have a picture of the sign entering the room called the Iron Spike Room. Well, I went home and I did some research. And this show was on, what was a week ago, March 28th, I think. It was changed on March 9th. Carolwood. Huh? So needless to say, we That's had a bit of a... Uh, that was his street. Carolwood is the street that Walt Disney lived yeah. on, and the Carolwood Pacific was the miniature train he built in his backyard. Hmm. So when Kevin was told he was wrong, we had a... Had a hissy <laughs> fit. Had a little bit of a hissy <laughs> No, I'm not wrong! <laughs> and I went and looked mine up, too, and I was right on my question about the software on the bus. What did Stitch mean? It's the software that puts that up there. So... I was right too. And there are there have been different versions of it. Instead of calling it two point oh, three point oh, they've named it after different characters. Right. Like mm. Snow White and So be prepared if you send a question into the round table, we will not go quietly. <laughs> no. <laughs> we will fight to the We man. don't like to be proven wrong. <laughs> All right. Anyone else have any housekeeping? All righty, we're gonna move on to the news. And I've got a couple of news stories here. I just wanna 
uh, say before I read the news stories, this wasn't a good week for Disney in the news. No. If you have sensitive children with sensitive ears or you're not wanting to hear bad news about Disney, you might want to fast forward past my news section. As a matter of fact, all of the stories are pretty gruesome. So uh, just want to give that warning out ahead of time. Our first story is Disney transportation buses involved in three accidents in under two weeks. Last week, we reported that on Tuesday, March 23, 2010, a Disney transportation bus collided with a charter bus just outside of the toll plaza at Epcot in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, sending eight people, including the driver, to nearby medical facilities for treatment. Since that time, the bus driver, Jean Valentin, has been charged by Florida Highway Patrol with careless driving. On Thursday, April 1, 2010, nine-year-old Chase Brubaker of St. Petersburg, Florida, was struck and killed by a Disney World bus as he was riding his bike on Big Bend Drive near Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort. Brubaker was riding his bike with an 11-year-old girl who, when he was struck. The girl was not hurt. None of the 28 passengers on the bus were injured. The Disney bus driver, who has been identified as 56-year-old David Rich, has not been cited with any charges by Florida Highway Patrol at this time. According to Florida Highway Patrol Sergeant Kim Montes, based on what investigators knew as of Friday, she did not believe the bus veered into the boy. And most recently, uh, an incident occurred on Saturday, April 3rd, 2010, when a Disney bus rear-ended an SUV driven by an Ohio man, which was then pushed into a Disney van. The incident occurred just before noon on East Buena Vista Drive and World Drive near the entrance of Disney's Hollywood Studios. The SUV and the Disney van were stopped at a stoplight. It's reported that there were 19 passengers on board the Disney bus, but no injuries were reported in any of the vehicles. The driver of the Disney bus, 81-year-old Frederick Kaysons, has been charged with careless driving. Okay, my question is, do you think 81's a little too old to be a bus driver? Eighty-one year old, too old to be walking. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand that you know people need a job, but I think at eighty-one you should be. It's know, illegal checking. to discriminate based on age. Oh, I understand that. You but, can be too young, but you can't be too old. But I mean, you would. Well, it, it's not so much that it's Disney, but I'm not disagreeing with you, and I think bus drivers should be tested. I think anyone who's taking the responsibility for other lives should be tested. Regularly tested Or made to go back for Remedial driver's ed I think it, I, don't, I don't think that has to do with age Surprisingly 81 seems to me To be kind of advanced To be driving a bus full of people around I think even more importantly Is that one of our listeners Actually two of our listeners mm-hmm. Tim and Leslie Reported this person back in August To Disney For driving carelessly Apparently, he was hitting curbs and bouncing people around, and they said to him, they reported him to Disney and guest services. He actually hit a curb so hard that one little boy's head bounced off the window and was crying. And when they told him that he really needed to slow down and be a little more careful, his response was, do you want to drive the bus? So at this point, with Mm -hmm. Disney being armed with this information, I hold Disney 100% responsible. Mm Uh, not the 81-year-old gentleman. I hold Disney responsible. They need this to reevaluate their entire right. transportation uh, department. Something this is Disney's fault. Well, if okay. this has been reported and nothing has been done, this is their fault. Airline pilots have to retire at a certain age, so why can't, you know, maybe it's not Disney's responsibility, but somebody needs to institute something that says when you're a bus driver carrying so many people or driving so many pound bus, 
that you retire at the age of whatever. I think it should be skill set. I, I think, think there should be a, a test of your response, right. your response time. Every but isn't that normal here? No. No. Okay. There's no law, in, I believe, in any of the, the 50 states that says anyone has to be retested at any time. There's an eyesight test that uh, I believe can be ordered by police, correct, that says you have to go back and take an eyesight test, but okay. there's no written or skill set that has to be taken to keep okay. your license. I also think it goes beyond the age of this this final bus driver in that this is a series of accidents that have occurred at Disney. What's going on with your transportation department that there's so many problems, which seem like all of a sudden? But I think the one where the, the child, that I think that truly was an accident. I think the bus driver was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that happened. I don't think it was his carelessness. They're still investigating that, so we don't have the whole story, but that's the way it seems to be Wouldn't so far. Wouldn't you think there would be a bike path? Right. Why wasn't the kid on a bike path? What, was right, he in a bike lane? A... I'm not blaming anybody, but I think to myself, Disney goes so far out of their way to make things accessible and enjoyable to people. If they're going to rent bikes, I, I have to believe that a 10 and 11-year-old should not have been on the road with the bus. And also, they were right. on... They're on the sidewalk. But no, this, it actually occurred where there was no sidewalk. Oh, there was no sidewalk. There was guardrails. They showed it from the air on uh, the chopper where they set up the tent where the accident occurred. And there were guardrails. And it seemed to me like there was not even a soft shoulder or a bike lane. Oh, so he was on the – okay, I thought he was on so the Because I saw sidewalk. a picture that looked like it was the sidewalk and the road. And if you veered off the sidewalk – you would have gone right Yeah, that's what it looked like to me. That's what I thought. They did show a sidewalk is what I was thinking. But maybe where the kid did they ever say if the kids were maybe on a road they weren't supposed to be on? No, no, no. I don't think they ever mentioned that. Again, I'm not placing blame. And all I I can't, all I can do is my heart, tell people that my heart goes out to this family. Mm -hmm. It's got to be the most horrible thing to ever happen to them. And it's just a horrible thing to have happen. And there's nothing, those parents now, anything that would happen They've already lost their child, so there's nothing really that can make it right, that can make them feel a little bit better. But Nothing's going to make that change. Right. 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 All right, let's move on to our second happy story. <laughs> two cast member suicides at Disneyland Paris Resort prompt investigation. Two suicides by Disneyland Paris, ca- Disneyland Paris Resort cast members have prompted union leaders to call for investigations of what they, call, what they are calling brutal working conditions. Since early February 2010, a restaurant manager and a restaurant worker at the Disneyland Paris Resort have committed suicide. A third cast member whose occupation was not identified threatened to end his life at the park itself. Guy Bruno Moby, leader of the Disneyland Union, was, has blamed the latest two deaths on brutal working conditions at the resort. Quote, it's all about profit, 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 said Moby. The combination of fewer staff and demands for more productivity just pushed these poor men over the edge, end quote. According to Moby, the latest incident, 37-year-old restaurant manager, identified only as Frank L., had told colleagues he wanted to leave his job because of having to work more and more with less and less means. The company has said it will investigate the possible factors of stress or harassment. Folks, if you're that stressed, quit. Well, this is not... Uh, from what I understand from investigating the story, this is not um, unique to Disneyland. Apparently, the, the suicide rate of the French is very high, and they blame a lot of it on 
their working conditions. Mm-hmm. There was recently a company, I don't have the information in front of me, there was a company where 44 workers committed suicide and it has to do oh with gosh. working conditions in the country. And I guess it's a lack of unions. I don't know. I don't know that much about it, but sad. There's nothing. I don't have anything to say. It's yeah. just horrible. I said the news is pretty grim this week. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. All right. And our final story, Disneyland Resort feels impact of Mexican earthquake. Okay, let's just quit now. <laughs> really? <laughs> On Sunday, April 4th, 2010, a 7.2 earthquake occurred about 19 miles southeast of Mexicali, Mexico at 3.40 p.m. local time. The earthquake affected tens of millions of people across two countries and three states while swaying high-rise buildings from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. In Disneyland, California, rides were closed and inspected for damage, and several historic hotels were evacuated as a precautionary measure. Initial reports that people had been trapped in elevators in the Disneyland Hotel are not true, according to Disney spokespeople. Hotel guests did report seeing water suddenly splashing in the swimming pools. All rides at Disneyland were shut down and inspected for damage, but were operating again by the end of the day. Park protocol dictates all rides come to a stop in the event of an earthquake. The rides remained motionless for about an hour, while inspectors made sure none were damaged. Disneyland spokespeople say the park never closed, and after it was determined nothing was damaged, all the rides were resumed. So this mm. is just in time for our trip. That's what earthquake number yeah. two. Oh, That's the first thing imagine? I was thinking about. I'm like, y'all, y'all are leaving next week. <laughs> yeah, we're leaving Saturday. <laughs> Jeez. We leave Saturday. I've called ahead. These aren't happening while I'm there. <laughs> Did you call ahead? I've known. I know people. You check the earthquake predictions. I did. I made sure there are none. There's an interesting picture on uh, uh, one of the websites out there has everybody leaving the park, and it's just this mass of people mm. trying to get out of Disneyland. And you think to yourself, what are you going to do? It's not like, I mean, where are you going to go? It's going to happen no matter where you are. I saw even outside Disney. If somebody said that they brought out more characters and there was Bert and some of the characters out on Main Street performing for the people. Sesame Street trying to explain earthquakes to people. No, Bert, you know, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Oh, I thought it was Bert and Ernie. Oh, I thought you meant Bert and Ernie, too. They were doing the move at Shake It. (laughs) (laughs) Shook too much. This ride's supposed to be at Universal. (laughs) It's a little unnerving to be going out there and having this occur, don't you think? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Has okay. anyone here ever been in an earthquake? No. No, thank goodness. No, Getting the doorways is what I understand. Nope. Actually, it's the opposite. Huh? Get to a clear area. Get to a place where there's no buildings or anything that could fall on you. Well, if you're in a building. Oh, yeah. If you're in like a hotel room or something, right? Get to the doorway. Oh, I fell to the bathroom. That's for tornadoes. Yeah, tornadoes. That's, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's, that's tornadoes and hurricanes. And irritable, irritable bile syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> for us, it's the same. We don't have them at all, so. <laughs> well, they say the door frames are the strongest part of the construction. So stand in a door frame. Okay. Teresa, were you going to say something? Have a good time. <laughs> I'm, actually moving, I'm actually moving our bed into the door frame. <laughs> I'm going to fold that mattress up. It's just weird that it was so far away, and that's where they felt it. Yeah, they I said mean, they felt it all the way up in uh, one of our the people on our board said they posted it or they posted that they felt it all the way up in northern California. It's incredible. Wow. All right, that'll do it for news. Let's move on to rapid fire. Who wants to go first? I will. Over here, me. Who wants to go first? Teresa, over here, Don. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Going once. Right, Teresa, you can go first. Okay. Um mine's actually about Bush Gardens in Tampa. 
They've recently opened the new Sesame Street Safari of Fun, where imaginations run wild and there's fun for everyone. Two and a half acres of all kinds of fun Sesame Street stuff. There's Air Grover, which is um, soar with Grover on his plane through the Sahara, a junior coaster full of fun turns, many dives, and plenty of laughs. There's the Safari Go-Round. There's a Jungle Jam, Treehouse Trek, all kinds of fun things. It just opened it up. And now that we know that SeaWorld will get you to Tampa free on their little trolley, bus, whatever you want to call it. Their little trolley. Their little trolley. <laughs> it takes six days. <laughs> you have to pedal. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was cool. You know, something I, new. Could, I could handle those rides. Yeah. And it, it looks like it's geared towards the younger kids, but That's still. That's what I mean. It's a fun thing, you know. Cookie Monsters Trading Post. Bert and Ernie's water cookies. There's a doubt that the Sesame Street thing is named as aimed at younger children. Well, I don't know. It says fun for the whole family, but you know, I think it sounds cool. Thank you, Teresa. Sure. Who wants to go next? I will. Since Teresa's out of the table, I can't really go around the table. Uh, I would like to announce that we have finished the first official Diz Club book, the Diz Book Club discussion. We read The Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton. And we have moved on to our second book. Nikki Bell is running a discussion on our boards. We're reading the book The Help by, I believe her name is Lisa Gruen. I could be wrong on the the author of the book. I apologize if I am. But the book is called The Help. It's a wonderful book that takes place out in Mississippi between the African-American women and the Caucasian women that they work for at the dawn of the civil rights movement. It was a real good book. It really, I've enjoyed it a great deal. And it's a great book that's going to lead to a lot of discussion. So please come join us. Thank you, Kevin. Corey. Uh, we're expanding our Disney Cruise Line area of the Disney. Because we're expanding our family. Yeah, we've <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> um, we're expanding our Disney Cruise Line area of the Diz. We've um, we've added a lot of new content, and also the all the stateroom layouts have been added. So if you're if you're looking to book on the Disney Dream or the Disney Magic Wonder, or whatever, all the stateroom layouts have been added, so you can kind of get an idea of what these rooms look like. Also, the itinerary maps have been added for the majority of the itineraries that they have, so you can see the whole path of where we're going, where they're going. So I just wanted everybody to know that. Excellent. I found it very interesting when I was looking at these layouts. Did you notice that the family suites don't have tubs? The family suites have these stand-up showers. So the Cat 8s and the Cat 4s don't have tubs. I think that's a really weird decision. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at them now. Yeah. And the rest of them. See how they've got this sort of rounded stand-up shower? That yeah. toothpaste tube shower like they have on Royal Caribbean. Yep, but this one is like built into the room, so I don't know if it's going to be that It seems thing. weird that they chose to take the tubs out of those rooms. Right. When those are the, the rooms you think they'd want them the most. Right. You really get an idea of how big the verandas are, though. You know, when you compare them to the other staterooms and they say, you know, your veranda is this big. But when you see these layouts, you well, really get an idea of, wow, it's huge. I'm not thrilled that they put the suites at the back of the ship, but you can see why they did it. Because yeah. those staterooms, those uh, balconies are gigantic. Yeah. For the cats one, two, and three, or R, S, and T, or Elemental Q, or whatever they are. <laughs> Just to confuse us. Thank you, Corey. Kathy? The prices for the Fort Wilderness carriage ride and the Port Orleans Riverside carriage ride have been raised to $45. And the ride at Saratoga Springs has been discontinued. That's that. And just wanted to mention again that um, we have the 
the Muddy Buddy race coming up if people wanted to donate. And the four team members that we have are Tim McDonald, Brittany Nichols, Todd Carrier, and Chris Walthers. Um, okay, where's that? I know that John Gore and uh, Crazy Disney Man are two of the screen names. Do we have the screen names for the other folks that are running? Uh, no, because he sent me, sent it to me on Facebook. And okay, if you cool. if you have a screen name, will you let us know who you are so that the folks on the Diz boards can follow along with what's going on? All right, thank you, Kathy. Okay, wait, one second. Do we know why Saratoga discontinued the horse uh, carriage rides over there? No, but I would think there probably wasn't as many people. Lack me. of interest. Yeah. Guest yeah. demand. There's also not. It's not a scenic. You know, yeah. look at downtown Disney. <laughs> you know, you can walk. You can take a carriage ride through the parking lot. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Kathy. Yvette, you said you had one. I've got one. Uh, D Street opened at downtown Disney. It's a new store. D Street opened at downtown Disney West Side in the location formerly occupied by the Planet Hollywood store. D Street offers urban-inspired products for both men and women, along with a huge selection of phenomation. Vinylmation. Vinylmation. Okay. I interpreted that. I don't know why. Hmm. <laughs> I, I just, know what she, she meant. <laughs> she just. I just know. I didn't understand the word she said, so I was just. <laughs> Have you been? I'm uh, not French. <laughs> I'm not from the UK. So here we go. I, I think you've got a problem with Europeans. Oh, oh my! <laughs> Did you go into the store? I was no. in there over the weekend. It was really crowded, and they have like a a big table that's like glass, but they have all the little vinylmation characters underneath, and they've got every vinylmation character you could ever think of, like along the wall that you can buy. But it comes back to the same thing. You don't know what you're getting unless you buy the whole mm-hmm. thing. And you can trade in there, but... I have an orange one, a clear orange one, if anybody's desperate for clear orange. <laughs> what? Uh, where is it located in downtown Disney? Um, it's on the west side. Across from Wetzel's Pretzels, across like the sidewalk. You know, it's your first... Oh, it's like, over, over by the, the balloon. Star Next Abelia. to where Star Abelia's used to be. Yeah. Oh, okay. But Do you they put had these like things a, on display, like they're snow globes or something, or are they just? I bought they one. Fill your closet. I bought one because it was sealed, and I wanted to see which one I was going to get. And when you don't know until you open it, it's a surprise. But there's there's series. Series mm-hmm. one sold out very very quickly and became collectible. It's like pin trading. Yeah. But they had one like for the cruise line. They had a figment one. They had a lot of really interesting looking ones but again i'm not interested in trading them i wanted to buy what i wanted to buy right the only way you can guarantee yourself to get all of them is to buy a complete unopened case i know and there's two of each from what i understand there's two of each style in there and then there are two mystery ones Mm -hmm. and the only way to guarantee that you get the mystery ones which are harder to get than the other ones is to buy the full case. Otherwise, then you have to trade. So they're really forcing you to to trade whether you want to or not. Unless you want a clear orange one or whatever color you get when you open it. Now, again, there are series. Uh, I happened to buy at the time they had the clear series. And they were all, they're just like clear acrylic. But the first one was a Park Series 1, I think. Please don't hold me to this. I haven't really been paying that close attention. So they would have the, the, the first series, and that sold out. Then they came out with a Urban Series. And I don't know what they're on now, but I know they did a Clear Series. And then I think they were doing a Park Series 2, where they're based on the, uh, the Disney artists are given the little 
model and told to design what they want. And that's what happens. Hmm. You'll and need they, a pretty big lanyard to trade these in the park, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and they had a case, too, of um, some of the Disney shows have personalized some of the Vinylmation characters. So you can look from, like, Sweet Life and uh, I forget what that singing group was that we saw at Epcot. The Jonas uh, Brothers? Jonas Brothers and no, the, Demi Lovato. No, the uh, group before that. Uh, your weekend. I forget. The Cheetah Girls. No, but, but there, there's a bunch of Disney shows that have, you know, it's a nice store to go in, and then there's an area that the kids can create. Is that know. all they sell? They have some clothes and stuff in there, and it says that they're supposed to feature local artists, but I didn't really see any local artists. But what are the things. urban inspired products for both men and women? Um, it was the like clothes? I thought it was, was like, the clothes, right? Yeah, it was like T-shirts with just um, different artsy things. Sort of edgy Mickey. Similar to um, Trendy. If you were going to go, if you had to pick between the two, I'd go to Trendy. Yeah. Because D Street just looked more like (laughs) T-shirts. I thought D Street would be more like the vault. Yeah, that's what I was Downtown Disney, Disneyland. I wasn't impressed, but you guys might be. I walked through Trendy the other day. We had a stop and we went to guest services. for. Actually, we went to guest services to renew my mom's pass. And I was impressed. I'm impressed by the store Trendy. I think they have cool stuff. They do. Yeah, they like really the, do. The lighting, yeah. the whole atmosphere. Yeah, cool. it's an entirely different experience at Downtown Disney. It's I, not like any other Disney store. Yeah, I felt trendy just being in the store. You know, like, hey, look, she knows okay. shop. I like, I like the Disney clothes there because normally it's just like a big Mickey on it and you go like, okay, that's a Disney t-shirt. And now you've got like a t-shirt with hidden Mickeys on it. It's it's more subtle. You can almost wear it to a club if you're, you know, a woman. Well, I also think it's, I think the thing that I like the most about it is it's not the same stuff that they sell in the world of Disney and Mouse Gears and the Emporium and that one in Animal Kingdom that I never go to. Animal Kingdom Island Traders or whatever it's called. Uh, So, I think it's nice that they have merchandise that's unique to that location. And if you get a chance, go check out Ride Makers. That is an awesome, cool... If you're into cars, it's a really cool place to go. Just to look at the cars that are in there, not even to make them, but you can make the, the little model Radio cars. Radio controlled cars? Yeah. But the cars that they have on display are really worth looking that's at. That's in the old Virgin store? Mm-hmm. You design your own, correct? You put your own rims mm-hmm. on it and deck it out. They've got like different bodies and different wheels, and then you can go over and play with it. And then they've got an area that kids can play with some of the different cars. And it was pretty packed when we were there the other day, but it was like big enough that everybody could still be in there. And the cars that they have, um, a lot of Chip Foose done yeah, customized cars. Yeah, it was. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Thanks, Yvette. Walter. This one is about SeaWorld Orlando sleepovers. After an entertaining evening at SeaWorld, you'll snuggle into your sleeping bag to spend the night with some awesome animals. Sleepovers begin at 6 p.m. and end at 9 a.m. the next day. You'll participate in fun-filled activities, visit animals, and enjoy a pizza dinner. Then you'll sleep next to either manatees, dolphins, beluga whales, polar bears, penguin, or coral reef. A continental breakfast wraps up your adventure in the morning. That sounds cool. It does. It sounds wet. Um, it's basically anywhere where they have a viewing area. The viewing area where you would see the beluga whales or the oh. dolphins or uh, the manatees. Yeah. The pictures that show they're all sleeping right underneath the, the viewing area. So and it's not was, just for kids? Uh, let me see. We have um, school groups, which is grades 2nd uh, through 12th. That's a big range. Uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and family sleepovers for kids with 
kindergartens through fifth grade. So I'm going to have to rent a kid. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to put Stella with a 12th grader? So that's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, here you go. That's too large of a range, I'm kind of thinking. I, I'm, I'm sure they must. Maybe they divide them up like the 12th they, they graders get to, the beluga whales. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> anyway, they cost, uh, it costs $78 a person or $103 if you want to go to SeaWorld the next day. Kathy, you can have Grace. So it sounds okay. like an interesting can, thing to do. Borrow Grace. You can have Grace. That'd be cool. Kathy, are you willing to sleep in a sleeping bag on the ground? For that, yeah, I'd do that. You would? Yeah. Well, that would be interesting if you did that. Take Grace and hit it. And get it. <laughs> Go for it. Well, the key word in that sentence was, if you did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> How is Grace going to be when she wakes up in the middle of the night next to a beluga whale and Kathy? <laughs> And a 12th grader. <laughs> Maybe I should really? caution. I, I only want to sleep in certain areas. <laughs> like the Hilton. <laughs> Thank you, Walter. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Um, let's listen to Dave Parfit's interview with Herb Ryman. Uh, no. His interview with Marty Scalar about Herb Ryman. There you go. And I only know that because I know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for knowing that. Um, Dave's uh, been really great about getting interviews, and he was lucky enough to have Marty agree to a second interview about something that's passionate to Marty, which is the Herb Ryman Foundation. So let's give a listen. Greetings, everyone. This is David Parfit, special correspondent for the Diz Unplug, and today it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show retired executive vice president and ambassador for Walt Disney Imagineering, Disney legend, and friend of the Diz Unplugged, Mr. Marty Sklar now president of Marty Sklar Creative, Inc., his own company. Welcome back to the show, Marty. Well, thank you, Dave. It's my pleasure to uh, speak to you again, your audience. Marty, when you joined us on the show last time, you spoke about a small portion of your 54-year experience working with Walt Disney the Man and Walt Disney the Company. However, today, I wanted to talk to you about your work in another arena. You are one of the founders and current president of the board of directors for the Ryman Carroll Foundation, now known as Ryman Arts. This is a foundation created in 1989 as a tribute to fellow Disney legend and artist Herb Ryman, who passed away in 1989. First, for listeners that may not be familiar with Herb Ryman, could you tell them a little bit about who he was and what his importance was to Walt Disney? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, every first vision of a Disney art from Disneyland on through Disneyland Paris, first called Euro Disney, of course, was drawn by Herb Ryman, and Walt felt so strongly about uh, Herbie's ability to communicate about a subject or a story or, or a whole part that he was. Herbie was always the one that Walt went to, starting in 1953 when Herbie drew the first overall drawing of Disneyland. But of course, previous to that, Herbie had worked at the studio in. 19, I think it's 1941 and, and 42 on Dumbo and Fantasia and as an art director and Walt had gotten to know him then and in fact chose him as one of the, I think there were 15 people that Walt chose to go to South America on the trip that ended up creating Three Cavaleros and Saludos Amigos. That's right. Uh, so, so Walt had a, an affinity and a knowledge of Herbie's sketching ability and his ability to communicate about a concept through his visual. And right from the beginning, he picked Herbie to do that. And, and if you look at the first drawing of Disneyland, that overall uh, piece that Herbie did, 
he did the, the initial drawings for Walt Disney World and Walt's concept for Epcot. He drew the first drawing of Tokyo Disneyland. He drew early drawings of Main Street for Euro Disney, Disneyland Paris, and so many other projects through the years. I mean, individual attraction from Pirates to Indiana Jones, as That's a matter right. of fact. So he, he was just simply the best. <laughs> I mean, that's the best way to say it. He, he was the best. You already talked about that Herb Ryman continued working, making concept drawings all the way through the late 1980s, and some of his final concept sketches you mentioned were for the Indiana Jones adventure in, in Disneyland, which just so happens to be celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. Wow. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? It is. So how does the work of an artist like Herb Ryman contribute to the creation of an attraction, a World's Fair pavilion, or a theme park? What's their role? Well, first of all, there were a few artists that were absolutely incredible about research. Sam McKim was one of the best, and Herbie was the same way. In fact, if you went into his studio at home, you would find more books and magazines and journals from his trips around the world than anything else. And the reason was that he wouldn't start anything until he understood what the story was or who the characters were. And it was a, a deep study into the subject. And it didn't matter whether it was New Orleans. Uh, Herbie drew all those wonderful illustrations of New Orleans Square for Disneyland or, or Indiana Jones, uh, the same thing. He, he had to understand the story and feel like he could interpret it in, in the illustration. And what he did was really set the scene. And, you know, I always felt that as a viewer, you could look at one of Herb Ryman's drawings and say, I feel like you've been there. Long before you ever walked into a three-dimensional space. And it was that ability to communicate that Walt saw and loved so much and why he wanted Herbie to do those illustrations when he first broached a project to the public. But Herbie had a reputation of being slow because he would not start anything until he totally understood the story. Actually, he was the fastest artist there was because once he knew exactly where he was going, he could do it instantly. And some of his work that I admire the most were his watercolors. And, you know, watercolors, once you start putting that wet material on the paper, you have to go. You have to do it. And he he could do it. I mean, planning the white space on a drawing and focusing your eye on where he wanted you to, to look and the story that he wanted to tell. It's just uh, he totally understood how he was communicating visually. You mentioned some of Herb Ryman's travels. You talked about he was on the tour with Walt Disney to South America. I believe before he started working with Walt Disney, he took a break from his work as a sketch artist at MGM and set off on an odyssey around the world. It seemed that travel became a really important part of his work. He was sketching as he was going and experiencing the world. Well, there's no question about that. And in fact, we have in our Ryman program all of Herbie's sketchbooks. And recently I, I made a talk up uh, last year at Pixar about Herb Ryman. And I uh, decided to take one of his sketchbooks with me. And I, I didn't open it until I was on the plane going up there. And what I found incredible was that his sketches range from trips he took in the 30s to 
uh, travel with the circus, the Ringling Brothers Circus, and more recent things that related to Disney projects, and they were all mixed up in his book. In other words, his sketchbooks, because he preferred that to, to photograph. He would sketch a scene and make notes. The sky was dark and ominous. There was a fire burning. Animals that he saw on his trips to Africa. They're all notes about the colors, the light, and they're on his sketches. And then when he went paint that scene, years later, in many cases, he'd have all the information there that would recall exactly what he had seen on the trips. And he started making those trips in the, in the 30s to Asia. And he really loved that part of the world. And he was in Cambodia in about 1936 and Japan. And he had wonderful sketches from that part of the world. And then he had an invitation from John Ringley North to travel with the circus when it used to travel in tents, 1939, 1940, in that, that period. And he, he spent two summers doing that. And his sketches are just amazing. That all fed into his his knowledge base and to have somebody like that and knowledgeable about uh, these different places in the world was really a great advantage for all of us to feed off of. Mm -hmm. I could see his traveling with the Ringling Brothers Circus being great research for the work that he would do on Dumbo and then traveling around the world is a natural extension for all the worlds he would build at Disneyland, Walt Disney World and especially all those country pavilions in Epcot. Well, absolutely. You know, he had a first-hand knowledge of different places in the world that, that he went. I have a little sketch he did of a bridge along the Seine in, in Paris that I treasured. Marty, what was Herb Ryman like to work with at Walt Disney Imagineering? Well, he, he loved the people, of course. That, that's the main thing. And he was kind of, uh, he was the patron saint of certainly Imagineering and I think maybe even Disney artists because one of our problems, if you will, with Herbie was he was often not in his office. He was often wandering around the, the buildings helping other artists to improve their work and to understand their assignments. And so many of them owe a debt of gratitude to Herbie for what he taught them about about an illustration. I, I could cite, I won't use the artist's name, but I'll cite one example. I was having uh, difficulty getting an artist to draw something for Typhoon Lagoon. was unable to focus on that boat up top of the mountain and sure. to make it the centerpiece of the drawing. Right, really the icon and, of that water park. Absolutely. And the drawing was wandering off and had two minutes much other information that drew your eye away from that and I so one night about seven o'clock I went down to this artist's office and, and to see how he was doing and I started in and I heard this voice say no 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 give me that paintbrush and I backed out right away because I, I knew it was Herbie and the next morning I came in very early in the morning to see what he'd done and he had focused that whole illustration with, with maybe a dozen brush strokes but he focused it on exactly what we wanted to say out of that drawing. And to this day, when I look at that drawing, I see his brush strokes, even though nobody else knows that, that what they are. I know what he did to make that work. Well, that's what I was going to say, too. When I've been reading about Herb Ryman, I've seen him described a number of times using the word mentor. And it really seems like the Ryman Arts Foundation is an excellent way to carry on that mentoring tradition of Herb Ryman's. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've had wonderful help from many artists at the studio and at Imagineering who have come in and talked to our students. But, you know, we've had probably 4,000 young people through our program already in the 20 years. And we've reached out into, particularly into areas in downtown central parts of Los Angeles, very diverse areas. But we've probably reached another 7,000 lady students in inner city schools in the Los Angeles area through outreach programs. So if you had to succinctly describe the mission of Ryman Arts, how would you sum it up? Well, we really are teaching high school teens essential skills for art and life. And, you know, we're doing that with a program that's totally free. So we have to raise about three quarters of a million dollars each year for this program and it really has made a huge difference in the lives of many young people and we want to give them the foundation skills to do anything with their artistic ability and importantly we want them to be good citizens in fact 98 percent of the young people that come through our program go on to school either art school or uh, university and do something different but we give them the foundation skills and we help them develop personally and we have an annual board workshop at my home and we always invite students to make a presentation to us and one young man got up and really made an articulate presentation and when he was finished he said when i first came into your program I could not stand up and critique my own work or explain my own work to anybody else. And he said, it's made me, because it's one of the foundations of our program, that, that every, yeah, every student has to say why he did something on a drawing he's doing, and the teachers critique it, and the other students critique it. So they're all involved together, and it also is, has made, made great friends from kids who come from all over Southern California. So... It's uh, creating better citizens as well as better artists. It seems really important now, too, especially in times where the public school systems are under such intense budget pressures and art programs are being cut, music programs are being cut, and it's great that there is still this outlet there. Yeah, we we feel a greater burden, of course, because so many of the, even the teachers that we once worked with at various high schools in Southern California have now uh, gone away. Unfortunately, we, we definitely feel a, a greater burden to make this opportunity available to young people with talent. And also, each year, one graduate from Lyman Art who has gone on to college to be an artist will get an intern assignment at Disney in animation, and one more will get an intern assignment at Imagineering. So not only will funds be available as part of our endowment, but also the students themselves will have an opportunity to compete for these intern positions to really get a sample of working in, in a professional environment at, at Disney. And I understand that the internship will have the name the Ryman Sklar intern every year as well. Yeah. Imagine sticking that on somebody. <laughs> So are there ways that our listeners and readers can get involved with Ryman Arts? Oh, yes, David. We, of course, we're constantly looking for support, financial support from individuals as well as foundations. And we have a website. We also have published a book called A Brush with Disney, 
which is entirely in Herb Ryman's words about his life as an artist at Disney and his own work is full of wonderful, wonderful uh, illustrations of Herb's work in his own world and, and in his Disney world. And really in an interesting, very interesting way, the fact that not only did Herbie sketch what he was looking at, but he wrote down in his journal things about his travels and what he saw and what he was thinking about at the time and that's all in the book and it really is a wonderful story about this wonderful artist and not only are his journals in there but i remember seeing a journal of his mother's on that weekend where he was drawing the original drawings of disneyland with walt disney and the journal entry of his mother said herb off to work with walt disney this weekend that's correct and, and that's exactly what happened you know that that story is not a, not an apocryphal story that Walt called Herbie and said, Roy, oh, Disney, his brother, had, has to take the, this is 1953, has to take the drawings of Disneyland to New York on Monday. This was a Friday to show the bankers. And Herbie said, oh, I'd love to see them. And Walt said, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to do them. And Herbie said, well, I don't know what to draw. And Walt said, I'll tell you what to draw and literally stood at, at Herbie's shoulder for the weekend while Herbie drew that first big overall drawing of Disneyland and Walt told him what to draw. It's a, it's a remarkable piece when you think about that, that uh, someone, first of all, it was all in Walt's head, and second, that it could come out of Herbie's wrist. It's, it's quite a remarkable. It really is. It really is. Well, Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and educate us about your friend, colleague, and fellow Disney legend, Herb Ryman. Well, thank you, David, and I, I know you'll pass on how people can, can find out more about Ryman Arts and contribute to our work and perhaps buy that beautiful book. I will. If people want more information about Herb Ryman and Ryman Arts, you can go to www.rymanarts.org. This has been David Parfit, Senior Diz Correspondent, talking with Disney Imagineering legend, and friend of the Diz Unplugged, Marty Sklar. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you, Dave, for another excellent interview. He really does that well. Yeah. He does. Yes. I like it that Marty's a friend of the Diz Unplugged. <laughs> I want to go to Marty's house for dinner. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. I'm going to go make a presentation. Can you imagine the tchotchkes this man has? <laughs> I just want to be invited to dinner. Marty, are you listening? <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful cause. It really is. I mean, think about it. Um, I can't wait to get my hands on this book. Yeah, it sounds like a great book. Not only are they providing education, invaluable education, but two kids get to be interns. Also, if anybody's a Disney fan, if you've seen a Disney book, if you've been to a Disney park, you might not know that you're familiar with Herb Ryman's work, but you're familiar with Herb Ryman's work. He told that story at uh, Dizapalooza at the seminar about uh, Walt standing over Herb's shoulder and telling him what to put here and what to put through there. A testament to Walt's imagination, that he had it all up in his head, but then a testament to Herb's talent. There's so much from that story you can get. There's mm-hmm. so, that, that Walt Disney was like, they say he never took no for an answer. So it's just, it's, it, the whole thing just wraps it up. Yeah. It's a great, it's a full circle story. He never took no because he would always find somebody that would say yes. Right. <laughs> Again, thanks, Dave, for another excellent interview. And thank you, Marty. And uh, we're going to move on to Kevin's Restaurant Review. Kevin has a review of the Flying Fish Restaurant uh, in the Boardwalk. I don't know that I like following a Dave Parfit interview. He does that so well. He does a good job. 
Uh, we went to the Flying Fish. I, I wrote this review up, and it's been posted on the boards. And I have to tell you, I can't believe that it's taken me this long. I think I've eaten on, at every restaurant on Disney property pretty much, and I had never been to the Flying Fish Cafe before. Uh, we made our reservation, and off we went. Uh, I should say that the, the I know that the restaurant is designed by the same designer who designed Jico. So it's done by the same person. As we approach the building, this has a real prime spot on the boardwalk. This is a well-placed restaurant. When you walk in, it carries through that mid-Atlantic boardwalk feel to it. The colors are kind of blue and gold, very beachy, very um, evocative of the era and what they're trying to portray with the whole resort. They did something weird when we got there. We had a reservation for the very first seating. And as we walked in, there were two other groups waiting to be seated. And the hostess made quite a production out of making sure that we all had a beeper. And she took our numbers down, and she handed everybody a beeper. And when everybody was done, she turned around and beeped everybody. (laughs) (laughs) She I just feel I, important. Yeah, I thought that was an exercise in futility. I mean, it's not like any of us wandered off, you know, we're here. I mean, it was just, it was an odd sort of thing that they've done. Uh, the restaurant itself, I think, is beautiful. John described it as being a little tacky and over the top. I think that kind of adds to it. The whole flying fish motif, motif is all through the restaurant. The light fixtures that stick up in the air have a flying fish on them. There are two or three... Uh, Structures that look like the old uh, um, parachute drop at Coney Island that you see in all the pictures of Coney Island in its heyday. And it's the umbrella or the parachutes with people underneath them. But instead of people, there are two flying fish under each parachute. Mm. I think it's clever. There's uh, two giant seating areas. They seem to be separated by a little bit of a half wall. There's also a long counter where you can sit and watch the kitchen work. Which I thought sounded like fun. If it had just been John and I, I would have requested seats at that counter. I think that would have been enjoyable. And But we took my mom with us, so it was. I think it was a little too high for her. But it looked like a fun place to sit. When we first got in, we started our uh, dinner with appetizers. There are seven appetizers, and they are... We had a hard time convincing my mom that the wine pairing... There's a wine under each item on the menu, and that wine, the, the the price for the glass of wine is considerably less than the item it's paired with. And she kept saying to us, I don't think these prices are expensive. This is only $9. And that was for the special thunder appetizer, which was herb and fennel pollen roasted Maine lobster salad. That's only nine twenty five. I said, no, that's the glass of wine that goes with it. It's $18 for the appetizer. Oh. Well, then she'd go down to the next thing. Well, that's only $8. No, it's 15 okay. So <laughs> Once we got her past that, we were fine. Something about the flying fish menu, I think the items are priced by the word. They are very, very, very descriptive on this menu. And it's things like fennel pollen roasted Maine lobster salad. Uh, we started with... It's been a while since we've done this. We started with the, this is the name of the item. 
our signature flying fish cafe crispy Maine coast Jonah crab cake with sa- and then the, the description is with savory vegetable slaw roasted red pepper coolie and ancho chili roumelade. This is sixteen dollars. Sounds this, good. It, it was good. It was a giant crab cake. However, it was very spicy. The crab cake was spicy. The roumelade was spicy, and then there were uh, little dollops of um, I forget what it's called ceviche ceviche ceviche. That, that um, the hot red sauce that's served with Asian food, that was all over the plate. John took a couple of bites of it, and it was just too spicy for him. Isn't that sad? <laughs> wow. Um, we also started with the cheese platter. Now we've had this cheese platter in Wilderness, um, the Artist Point at Wilderness Lodge. We've had it at Narcoosie's. We've had it at several places. The cheese platter was sixteen dollars. In our opinion, this one was terrific. All of the cheese selections. And on your table, I didn't bring this with me, I apologize. On the table was a special listing of what was on the cheese platter and a description of each of the cheeses. I believe there were five different cheeses, and they they arranged them on the platter from mildest to sharpest. The mildest was uh, triple cream. I remember the name of it because we've looked for it because my mom liked it so much. It was called St. Andre. And the last thing on it was a... A blue cheese. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the cheeses on the platter was one of my favorites. It's called Humboldt Fog, and that's usually on one of the Disney cheese platters. It seems to be a popular choice. We thought this was well worth the money. The The selections of cheeses, the cheese itself seemed to be a larger portion than on most, and it came with uh, raisins on the vine, uh Honeycomb and kiln dried fruit compote, which was little raspberries and cranberries in a little phyllo cup. We thought it was terrific. It was $16. Expensive, but worth it. We also had the soup of the day, which was a creamy roasted parsnip bisque with savory vegetables, main crab beignets, dill creme fraiche, and a spicy chive mustard oil. That was $9. We asked for it to be prepared without the spicy chive mustard oil. And as it was arrived, they had two of the little main crab beignets. A beignet is, for those of you who have stayed at Port Orleans or people who are forbidden to New Orleans, a beignet is a little donut. And these had lobster and crab in them. They were delicious. Mm, so John, good. John and I eat those. We also had the fresh, uh, this one's even more wordy, mozzarella de buffalo, ugly ripe beefsteak tomato, Roma, and tiny Florida grape tomatoes with balsamic glaze, exotic peppercorns, petite basil, and Sicilian olio verde. This was mozzarella and tomatoes. Mm. It, it's a fancy word for it. It was very nicely prepared. The tomatoes were ripe and not those orange hothouse tomatoes that some restaurants serve. These were, it was really well done. Uh, we ordered our entrees. They are just as wordy as everything else. John had the oak-grilled Maine diver scallops with forest mushrooms, mascarpone, pecorino-laced risotto di carnaroli with truffle basil-infused oil. That was $34. My mom had the signature flying fish potato-wrapped snapper with leek fondue with a veal glaze, red wine, and cassis butter reduction. That was $36. And I ordered the chef's special pasta thunder, orichette, frutte de mare, rock shrimp, cape scallops, clams, sweet crab, fennel, fresh and sun-dried tomatoes, spicy arugula with a rich pernod-laced shellfish crema. Wow. 
As I said, by the time you were done reading every description, you thought, okay, I finished that book. Of the appeti- of the entrees, the one that seemed to be the most successful was John's. The scallops were not overworked, and it came on uh, a risotto. And it seemed to be the simplest of the entrees. The flavors were really fresh. It was really well prepared. That was the one everybody seemed to like the best. Mm. The potato-wrapped red snapper. Now, there are pictures in the blog. I think it's a little bit misdescribed. I expected there to be some evidence of potato, that there were going to be shredded potatoes on top. That's usually what that means. This is a potato dust Hmm. or potato flour or I don't know what it is, dehydrated potato flakes. All it does is, as they sear the fish, it I don't know how else to describe it other than it's a potato dust. There's no potato noticeable. So I assume it's a potato flour or something. This came on top of a pile of leeks in a really nice veal gravy. It was an odd choice to me. Apparently, this is something they've had for quite a while. This was a piece of snapper, and that was a big, thick, dense piece of fish, seared nicely, but then it came on a pile of leeks. And I don't know about anybody else, but I'm just not a huge fan of leeks. Leeks are good in leek soup, potato Mm -hmm. leek soup. They're good in another, as a thing by themselves. I don't know anyone eats them by themselves. It was like a pound of cooked leeks. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I was, was like, what is the purpose of this? There's a, there were a lot of leeks. And it's the kind of thing that I'm not really a fan of a leek all by itself. Right. Yeah. And once you cook them enough that they're tender and edible, they're kind of nondescript. However, the gravy that they were laying in, I've also never had fish with gravy on it. This is a veal glaze, red wine, and cassis butter reduction. This was phenomenal. They brought out bread, and I have to tell you, I think we licked the plate. (laughs) I know we soaked it up with every little piece of bread that was on the table. The leeks, we just kept pushing them out of the way. Right. Um, It wasn't that the dish wasn't satisfying. The fish and the gravy were delicious. However, in my opinion, they didn't go together. And the leeks didn't bring that back. I think had they used a pile of mashed potatoes, it would have, um, I thought, you know, maybe some root vegetables that you could have soaked up that gravy a little bit. Those leeks just kind of got in the way. It looks like they were using, I'm looking at the photo, it looks like they were using them for color. Uh, just to I, add that green yeah, to the plate. They weren't very good. They weren't very tasty. And again, they just kept getting pushed out of the way. The least successful was my entree. It was orichetti, which is a little ear-shaped pasta with seafood. Now, rock shrimp, cra- cape scallops, clams, sweet crab. We found some crab. We found some scallops. They were the little tiny ones. And we found a couple of the little rock shrimp. For the life of us, we could not find a clam in this pasta. The other thing that no one told us is that this was very, very spicy. And there's nothing in this description. I'll read it to you again. Rock shrimp, cape scallops, clams, sweet crab, fennel, fresh and sun-dried tomatoes, and spicy arugula with pernod-laced shellfish crema. Nothing in there says that this Mm -hmm. is going to be hot. And besides being temperature hot, it was so spicy that after a couple of bites, it was the kind of spice that built up. After a couple of bites, it was unedible. 
So the majority of that dish went back. It's not something I would recommend. It was... It just wasn't very good, and it was too hot. And I think at thirty—I'm sorry, twenty-eight dollars for that entree—you should be told that this is spicy. Yeah, there should be something that lets you know that. So, of the entrees, John's won, and my mom's came in second. Now, they do have some sides that can be ordered for the table. Uh, We—they have truffle and herb-laced Idaho fries. Grilled spring vegetables, creamy risotto, fine herb roasted mushrooms, grilled winter crop asparagus, and garlic and lemon scented rapini. We got the asparagus and we asked them, we need this cooked until it's very, very tender. So he said, usually they grill it, but if we wanted it cooked that soft so that my mom could eat it, they wouldn't be able to grill it. So they did it in, um, they just steamed it. And it came with a, a sauce, poyet, P-O-Y-E-T. And I said to the man, what is that? And he leaned down and he whispered to me, it's really hollandaise. And I thought, mm. well, why is that a secret? <laughs> <laughs> People like hollandaise. So the, 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 the asparagus was fine. However, the highlight of the meal were truffle and herb-laced Idaho fries. You know those carts that they have on the boardwalk? They should be selling these. They were French fries drizzled with truffle oil and herbs and sea salt. Huh. Uh, we've actually talked about it since then. Killer. And we might go back just for French fries. <laughs> uh, it sounds good. They sound tasty. Yeah. We loved every one of the appetizers. It was a little smorgasbord that we had going on the table. And we loved the sides that we ordered. Our entrees were... John's was good, but I don't. Would you describe it as uh, $34 good? It was a bit overpriced, but I will say you got re- six really good sized scallops, so it wasn't a chintzy portion of it. And I thought the risotto was very good. So. Let me ask you something. Would you go back to the restaurant to get that? No. Okay. That to me says something. If I'm going to pay that much money, I want it to be. I want it to be something I think about later on. And the fact that the thing that we thought about later on was a cheese platter and the French fries tells me that the entrees weren't in my opinion, were not up to those standards. They weren't as good as the beginning and the, uh, the add-ons. But it, was, it, was, it wasn't bad. They weren't bad. They just weren't great. After all that, we also had found time just for you guys so you guys would be mm-hmm. able to hear. We had, a, we had dessert. They had uh, seven desserts. We had... Uh, excuse me while I find it. John ordered a celebration of Plant City strawberries. Mm. Plant Plant City is a small town outside of Central Florida, just going towards Tampa, and it's the strawberry capital of Florida. Most people in the South, if you're eating strawberries, a lot of them come from Plant City. Every year, Plant City has the strawberry festival. I was there. Were you? Yep. It's a big deal. This came with a sinful Valrona chocolate strawberry delice, toasted almond polenta and strawberry torta, and a white chocolate strawberry creme brulee. I will will explain these things. The sinful Valrona chocolate strawberry delice was a little... Have you ever had one of the zebra domes at Boma? Mm-hmm. This was made with chocolate and strawberries. It was very rich. It was a very rich, dark chocolate, and they had made like a strawberry jam. It was almost, and then there was it was in a puddle of chocolate. 
While it was good, it was almost cloyingly sweet. The toasted almond polenta and strawberry torta was a little cake made out of um, almond polenta with a strawberry filling and a little glaze on the top of it. If you like the taste of almonds and strawberries, it was delicious. had a nice, moist texture to it. It was really nice. The white chocolate strawberry creme brulee was self-explanatory. It was quite tasty. That was very popular. And while this was good, I ordered the ginger, winter crop, apple, and pecan tart. And when I ordered it, John and my mom both looked at me like, really? That's really what you're getting? It came with cinnamon ice cream and salted caramel. I don't know about the rest of you, but if you put a little bit of salt on caramel, it makes me nuts. Hmm. I love the flavor of the salty and the sweet. And these were just little dollops of caramel around the plate. This was a apple, ginger snap, and pecan tart served warm with a scoop of cinnamon ice cream on top of it. Wow. And while I got odd looks when we first ordered it because it wasn't chocolate, it was by far the more popular of the desserts. The Valrona chocolate strawberry thing, some of that went back. The pecan, apple, and ginger snap winter tart did not. That plate went back. We even ate the pattern on the plate. <laughs> I like the fact that they use they try to use local ingredients in season. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They're, they're trying to use and support local growers and things like that. Dinner for the two of us, I'm sorry, for the three of us, was about approximately $200. That's after using the Tables in Wonderland card and had the tip included. The gratuity was included. Before that, it was like 220 So it's. I wouldn't refuse to go back there. If I went back, I would make my meal out of the appetizers and the side dishes that are ordered separately. I don't think I would order an entree. Now, I don't think it would be any less expensive for me to do it that way. I just found the food more enjoyable, the other things. I, I found the portions to be adequate. I found the food to be, the uh, entrees to be okay. There was nothing that tempted me to go back and order another entree. I would go back for that cheese platter. The soup was good. The crab cake was good. There were a couple other things that we could have tried. So that's my recommendation. I was surprised at how limited the children's menu was. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. I do have the kids' menu here. And there was a lot of families there with kids, and I thought the adult menu is a little too adult. And then the children's menu was so dumbed down. Well, it's also some weird choices. Uh, The appetizers on the kids' menu are romaine lettuce... With ranch dressing. <laughs> Is that what your kids call? You know, yeah. And a seasonal fruit skewer with honey yogurt. Mm, yummy. The entrees are grilled beef skewers for $12, Florida Coast fish sticks, which is and roasted red potatoes with vegetables. Now, I asked about these. These are not fish sticks. They're not fried. They're grilled pieces of mahi-mahi. So it's grilled fish. Uh, grilled chicken breast skewer. They did have grilled cheddar cheese for $6 and a bowl of Mickey pasta with tomato sauce and Parmesan or creamy Alfredo. I'm sorry, with tomato sauce and Parmesan with creamy Alfredo or creamy cheddar cheese sauce. So you could have mac and cheese or mac with pasta. And dessert was there was a Mickey milk chocolate cauldron, a fun skewer of fudge brownie, marshmallow and strawberry and angel food cake and Mickey's chocolate puzzle. 
with white chocolate puzzles, sugar paint, and a creamy topped chocolate cupcake for $8, which strikes me as a lot for a kid's dessert. Yeah. Yeah. How much was the mahi-mahi for the kids? The fish was, hang on, $11. Okay. Stella, Stella, I think, would eat almost anything on that. Really? Yeah. The fruit skewer with the yogurt dip. I think that sounds good. That would be a good appetizer. Next time she's in the mood for romaine lettuce. Well, she she likes lettuce with just dressing, so it's we, simple. I, I guess, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like it was really far-fetched of a children's menu, but if you said she'd like it. I mean, she would, and she likes mahi-mahi, so I know she'd eat that. I don't know about... Yeah, but if you had a picky child, I think they might have a, a problem with that menu. There's nothing in their mac grace, would it? I don't think in the whole Yeah, I mean, there, right. there are kids who, you know, will only have the... Chicken fingers and chicken fries. fries. Right, exactly. I, I've got to tell you, and on the adult menu... There's nothing that's going to appeal nothing to a child. Plain. No, nothing. Simple. We took my mom, and she, how do I say this? I don't want to say she eats like a child, but due to some of her re- dietary restrictions, she has to eat things that are a little plainer, yeah. a little less spicy. So it's things that would appeal to also a child. Only she's an adult. And we had a hard time coming up with her. The, the potato-crusted red snapper was... The least offensive choice, I'll put it that way. There was nothing like a grilled chicken breast or a chicken dish. It was all fairly fancy. Now, on the Disney Dining Plan, this is up there as a signature restaurant um, in the same category as Gico, Narcoosie's, California Grill. Would you recommend this over any of those? No. No? No. I mean, price-wise, it makes sense that it would be signature. I I agree. I agree with that, but I think you... I would rather go to Gico. I would rather go to Narcoosie's. I would rather go to California Grill. So use your points on something like that if you... That's my opinion. If I was going, as I said, I would go for appetizers, a dessert, and maybe some of those little add-on things to your entree. And I could still come up with a $35 meal. It wouldn't be like they were making any less money on me. I just think those choices were more appealing than the six or eight entrees that they had which none of them actually stood out as being really appealing to me. And we, we picked three. So that's my opinion. Thank you, Kevin. All right, before we wrap up, I know that uh, during one of the breaks, Kathy did some research, and she's got information on the uh, Muddy Buddy donation website. It is www.firstgiving.com slash dismud2010. And we'll have that link up on the show notes page. Excellent. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, I want to thank Yvette and Emil for joining us. Now, I know you guys are getting ready to go on a cruise. You're ready to go on the transatlantic cruise. Correct. Are you yep. excited? I'm so excited. It's going to be 25 days of cruising. So wow. That's right, because you get off of that, and then you join Pete on his cruise. Yeah, back to back. Well, you better rest on the wow. transatlantic, because he's putting you to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we need it. to rest. <laughs> it's, it's like the excursion starts at 7.45 a.m., and... Okay, we're, we'll see. He also told me that he's bringing you guys along because you have to deal with the Europeans. That Pete doesn't like any foreign people. <laughs> yes. And, you have to, and he's like, well, uh, Pete, people will speak English to you. No, I don't care. I have to have it go with me. He already told us, just, just hold my hand and walk with me. <laughs> yeah. And I already told him because one of the ports is Tunisia. And I've already told him it's the people there in the, in the Sous, the market are worse and not a bit worse but way worse than the people in the straw market in NASA. Really? So, oh, yeah. Geez. 
they're they're touching you and and try to grab you and oh and my go like, god okay, that's gonna last oh, a bye, few bye, seconds bye, with bye. pete they, they want to hear rage or arm hair yeah are they yeah, gonna braid really max's <laughs> hair <laughs> I'm, they did that on ellen the other day they had a guy come out and he had just been on a cruise and they braided the hair on his legs and he had all oh, these really? little rubber bands you you better take care of max Oh, that will be okay. okay. I, I've got two hands. Okay. Max strikes, strikes me as he might like being grabbed. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I would be surprised if they like sell Max in Tunisia. <laughs> it's can't not get a really like out of those jeans. Grabbing you <laughs> and, and pulling you inside, but it's more like Let's probably hope they more like with women pain. going like touching you and and touch, especially for the, the uh, yeah European people, their blonde hair and they they touch it and they and yeah, I don't like it. Oh so I will go first. Walter, I will wear your slap everybody <laughs> and then the rest can follow. Have you been to all of these ports before? No, no, just one. I've been to um, the last port we stopped is Monaco, and I've been to that port before, and the rest is just new for me. So, so the same really ship exciting. you're going over on is the same one that yeah, you're going to be on? Yeah, it's a bit difficult to go with the magic to the European. Oh, I didn't know. I mean, I don't repeat it. No, attention. it's the magic to the European, but if I want to go on the Wonder, I have to go back. Okay. Yeah, they're taking the... I didn't realize it was two different ships. Okay. It's the same ship. Same ship. Same ship. Okay. <laughs> She's taking the cruise over across the transatlantic cruise mm-hmm. over to reposition it okay. for the cruises that are going to be the Mediterranean, the Northern European, and then they're going on the very first Mediterranean cruise, which is one Pete and Max. Right. Okay. And of those 25 days, 22 of them are at sea. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. That's like 14 It looks like, but it's like... Only 12 or 13 or something. So <laughs> only, only. That'll be relaxing, though. Oh, yeah. The first cruise, the transatlantic, is like we go to Keswicki. And then I can, of course, look at all the new Keswicki addings they did because the slide is already working. So yeah. maybe. And then um, six days of sea, just in a row. So we're really going to like that. And we understand they're going to have special stuff. There's going to be lectures and guest speakers and tours that you can take. So it's not going to be... No, no, no. It's not only six days lying at the pool and just... Right. Don't make fun of that. There doesn't sound like anything wrong with that right now. No, no. That's a good thing. No, I'm I'm just hopping around the ship. I probably need to see the shows because on the Mediterranean we're probably not going to see that much shows. So. I, think that's a safe bet. I think that's a safe one there. <laughs> so Are you going to do karaoke? No, not this cruise. Not the next one after that either. Um, <laughs> no. Chris wanted to do something. Not not with you, I know. I She's know. saving up for the but podcast. It's not like it's a three-day cruise. You're going to see these people for a while. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. There's that woman. Yeah. <laughs> she did karaoke. She's really nuts. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, thank you guys for joining us. We're glad you could be here. And that'll do it for this edition of the Diz Unplugged. Join us tomorrow for an email show. Thanks, everybody, and have a good week. That's your only line? Yeah, I don't have an ending line. Stop listening. Exactly. <laughs>